Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast. This is season three, episode three. Thanks for joining us. Um, We're just now, you know, we're kicking into the season. We have a few episodes that are already Um, If you go to our social media pages, you'll see that Jasmine and I met up in LA um, this fall to record our first episode in person. So you can check that out. We've also been highlighting cities all over the countries. Um, So be sure to watch those reels and let us know what city you want to see next. Um, But today we're going to be talking about a very planny topic. So we're going to do our best to break it down um, and make it easy for everyone to understand, even if your professional background or practice is not in planning. Um, But we're gonna be talking about master planning, really the bread and butter of what a lot of planners um, and those adjacent to the field rely on in their day-to-day work. Um, And really the goal is to explain the process of the plan, how the public is involved. Last season, we talked about how to do public engagement. So we talked a lot about, talked about some different planning processes in that too, um, but also some of our thoughts and um, what we see as some issues and challenges and recommendations for um, how you as a public or as planners in, in developing master planning um, can be improved from our lens. Um, but before we dive in further, how are you, Jasmine? I'm doing good. Um... Very excited to be in season three, episode three. We have come a very, very long way in getting ready to record this episode. Nemo and I talked about our first intern and our first work experiences. And so this topic of master planning and the comprehensive plan is very, very near and dear to our heart. It's really a full circle moment. How you doing? Yeah, no, well said. I agree. Yeah, definitely. It took us back um, a little bit way back. We were thinking about where to find the, where to find the accurate information and, and historical context to, to prepare for this episode. We were like, well, now we know this exists, but where do we find it? Um, but yeah, no, I'm doing well. Just adjusting to the cold. Just think already thinking about spring and it's getting dark and just holding on to the little bits of light I can before the seasonal um seasonal affective disorder um kicks in so um no that's real and to your point Nemo and I do not work in a traditional planning role neither one of our titles are planner one or planner two and so it's been a while since we dug into what goes on downtown and in the government building so this is exciting we're happy to have this episode yeah, and actually, um, in preparation for this episode, um, we had asked a poll on our Instagram page, um, a little bit of a trick question about who is responsible for developing the zoning laws. Um, in, and we're going to talk about that a little bit in this episode, too. Um, but it was good to see all the participation. I think we got over 50 
responses to our poll. Um, so it was good to see kind of where everyone at, where everyone was at. Most, most people got the right answer. Um, yeah, and as Jasmine said, what, how it goes on in City Hall. And so um, the role that local government plays in master planning. Um, so to get started um, in this episode, we're gonna really talk about what it is, um, how it's applied, who's responsible, who's involved, why we have to do it. We're gonna use LA as a case study for their recent general plan update. And that's just something to note. We may switch off between this episode, but comprehensive plan, master plan, general plan, all generally mean the same thing. Different places just use different naming. Um, and then we'll share some of our takeaways at the end. So what is master planning? Overall, it's a blueprint for the future. Um, but while creating that blueprint for, blueprint for the future, it also examines the existing and proposed uses in that town. And that can be for streets, um, buildings, parks, um, utilities, um, whether that's water or sewage systems, looks at all the physical aspects of a city and um, looking at how what it is in the present day and then what it can be in the future. Um, it's usually planned for 20 years out. So in 20, uh, we've seen in 2020, a lot of the master plans that have come out are like Vision 2040. Um, they're looking 20 years out um, for that. Um, but a lot of times they're updated intermittently. So um, some of the towns I'm familiar with in Washington state would usually do 10 year updates. Um, so, you know, it was like vision 2025 and there's usually a theme around that. I always feel like there's a vision in the theme. I don't know if that's, <laughs> if that's, if that's standard or. I feel like everybody says, oh, I like that. We'll go with that. And we'll just keep using it over and over again until someone decides that now the new buzzword is outlook 2020 or something. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, that word had everyone in a chokehold the last like five years. Um, and uh, there's one thing we wanted to just know in terms of the planning process and how that relates to and how that can be, you know, how that works with the zoning process. As we said, the planning process is really the vision um, and it lays out the foundation for what the um, the town as a reflection of the town's planning commission um, and the legislative body um, and policymakers want for the city. However, the zoning process is the regulatory tool that enforces that ideal vision. Um, and the zoning process is what creates those zones of uh, what is determined as allowable development. And that's based on several factors. So that could be used for the activities that take place in that space, the way the buildings are constructed um, and how they are just in relation to the road and how the streets were built, and then the bulk of the building and like the sizing of them. And so in zoning, which I don't know if we've had like an official episode on zoning, but we've talked about it in probably almost every episode, but you'll see a, a zoning map that's usually colorful and every color um, corresponds to a use. So you'll see that some areas are zoned specifically for residential, so housing. Some areas are zoned specifically for parks um, and green space. Um, some there's also zones specifically for retail or entertainment. And so whatever is reflected in the, you typically whatever is reflected in the master plan would align with what the current zoning or future plan zoning is. But as whatever's in that space at the time of the existing zoning is what should be there. So if you see that something's zoned for retail, 
unless there's a mixed use development, you're not gonna see housing. You can, you can expect that if you were to drive to where that place is on the map, you're gonna see stores, you're gonna see um, commercial areas. So just to add here, so the goal really is to provide like a who, a what, a where, a when, a how, and a why around master planning. And so zoning, Nemo is talking about the different zones and the different land use requirements. That is really how the master plan is applied or how it's implemented in a place. So the what is like, it's a formal document usually what Nemo over a hundred or so pages and it has all these different pieces of it and then okay we wrote up this document how are we going to make sure that the goals and that vision for 2040 that we the town the public the city council have collectively decided is our vision how are we going to make sure that we see that vision 20 years from now when we use zoning and updates to our zoning and, um, and changes to our zoning to enforce or apply that vision that we want to see? Yeah, and why that, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but why that vision is important is because a lot of what makes up the vision of the master plan relates to areas that touch you and your family and, your, and, and how you get around your town. Um, are included in what is thought about for years. Usually the process of updating the master plan um, can, it take, can take time. It's usually not done in less than a year, um, but it involves a lot of research, a lot of public engagement, um, a lot of uh, um, internal meetings as well to determine what is the best plan moving forward for those particular sites and elements of the city. So some of those are like environment, um, urban development. So there may be specific parts broken into the master plan for the downtown areas of the city, um, land use that goes more specifically into the zoning that we were just talking about, transportation elements in a master plan. So what um, for future transit that town may want, um, how they may want um, micro mobility, so like bikes and scooters, how they may want those things to be used. Um, you know, 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago, there was more of a, a fixed state fixation on fixed bike share stations. But you know, now as cities are updating their plans, they may see like, well, times have changed. That's not necessarily the way of the future anymore. Um, parks and recreation and then housing and community development are some of the other elements included in the plan. To jump in quickly on who is doing this planning, we have the legislative body in your city, those being the city council in most areas. You have planner staff. We talked about that planner one and planner two position. We have staff who work in the local government's planning office, the Department of Planning and Zoning. And then we have the planning and or zoning commission who oversee that process, who review applications for development, who make sure that things are in compliance with the planning and zoning regulations. And so, and then we have the public who have the opportunity to engage and say their opinions and, and say what they hope to see in that plan, all coming together to be the people that put together the master plan. So the reason why cities have to do this process and why they're required to um, is that there's federal laws back in the 1920s that created the legal requirement for comprehensive plans. 
Um, and that came out of the US Department of Commerce. Um, and at that time, um, the US Department of Commerce was concerned with managing growth and saw that um, creating master plans and having zoning was a way to responsibly and orderly control the growth of the cities. However, they delegated that land use and permitting, permitting regulations to specific districts um, and broken up by counties or cities or municipalities that each state can create their own planning laws and then the, the municipalities can control that process and guide their process. So even though there's a federal law that requires states to delegate to their counties and cities, there's no federal law that really creates a blanket over what those cities can decide to do. The first law in 1927, the first edition of the Standard City Planning Enabling Act, when you break it down, it, it kind of explains it a little bit. <laughs> um, but just reading that in a sentence, you may not quite get all the pieces. Um, but as I mentioned, that is what delegated the organization and the power of the Planning Commission, as Jasmine just mentioned, as the WHO, um, who's really behind the preparation of adopting the master plan. Um, it requires the content of the master plan to include that, that um, physical development piece. Um, as I mentioned, utilities, streets, roads, um, parks. Um, it also requires the um, adoption of the master plan by the city's legislative body. So whether that's um, the city council or um, the um, for a county, they may have their county executive board, um, but there's usually that legislative decision-making body in the government that um, does the final adoption of the master plan after the planning commission um, develops it. And then there is the um, control over how they really manage their land. Um, and then the, that law also established the regional planning commissions um, and regional guidelines that may also impact how a town develops their own individual master plans for them to be in line with what the region is doing. I think the regional planning is definitely something that we should explore in an episode moving forward because I think most people are familiar with like your state government and then your county government and then your local government. But the regional planning aspect is like really interesting because they don't necessarily have a governing authority over what happens, but they also create plans and create um, transportation plans and housing plans that kind of overlay over a region. So like, for example, in New Jersey and New York, there's the... Um, RPA Regional Plan Association and they kind of put together plans that cover like North Jersey counties in New York City and then some parts of Connecticut and then I'm forgetting the name of it for DC but in California there's the Southern California Association of Governments and they do stuff for LA County, Orange County um, and the other inland county. And so it's like a county, multiple county wide that usually is like related to that metropolitan area that spreads over the main city and their sub surrounding suburbs. And they do planning for them. Atlanta Regional Commission, for example, is 16 counties around Atlanta. And so that's a really interesting dynamic that we won't get into in this episode. But there are all these different layers of people creating plans and visions for cities, and they all have different federal or state requirements and really the for 
from the perspective of land use and housing, the zoning is that one thing that makes sure it all comes together. Yeah, and I think the representation, usually those um, regional planning um, groups have a representative for each county or city that falls in their jurisdiction. Um, and depending on how each of those representatives choose to use their position um, on the regional council, they can have a lot of influence to sway the region for what their own you know, goals are for their county. I'm not saying whether that's a bad or good thing, um, it just varies um, based on you know, each locality. Um, but again, not something that you really see happening. It's kind of like, are you in the room when it happens to know that it's going on and impacting future decisions of you know, what will be considered allowable development in your town? So Nemo, when does this process generally happen? Like when are cities typically engaging in their comprehensive general master planning process? Yeah, so it depends when their original master plans were written and adopted. Um, and so they are usually planned for the next 20 or more years. Um, and so um, certain parts of the plan um, and again, depending on what um, legislation that each jurisdiction sets for themselves or what their state um, implies or you know, requires, um, they may have to update certain parts of it. So I mentioned a lot of um, towns in Washington state usually update every 10 years. Yeah, I know. I looked at the California case study and their legislation only requires them to update the housing element of the plan. So Nemo talked about there being all these different, a transportation, a housing, a land use. Only the housing element is required to be updated every eight years, but the cities are also required to like send in annual progress reports basically on like where they at with their plan. But the cities have reign over how frequently they wanna do the general plan update. And that's primarily because the plan is very extensive and in our show notes, I'll, we'll have a link to examples of master plans and I encourage all of you guys to just Google whatever town you're in or pick a city you're interested in and just Google city of Indianapolis general plan city of Birmingham, Alabama, Vision 2040, and just kind of skim through it and see what those different elements are. And you'll see all of the research and public engagement. Hopefully you'll see public engagement. All of the pieces that kind of go into the planning, you'll get a better sense of it, but we'll definitely link some in the show notes for your leisure. What I always find interesting when I look at master plans for towns that I'm interested in, um, uh, I always find it interesting, the history, because usually there's a lot of context given before they even get into what's proposed, but the plans will tell, you know, what, how really from the genesis of how the city started, um, you know, what the land was intentional, wasn't originally intended for, and then kind of tell the story of what changed over time. Um, so I always find that to be interesting. It's been a while before I looked at this LA case study, it had been a while since I reviewed city general plans, but I have the same experience when you, especially if you look at one for your city and you see kind of what the visions are and you look at the areas where there's planned for growth or planned for um, a halting of growth, like they want to preserve certain open spaces and you start to think about, okay, well, how are they going to, you know, we're planning for it. We talked about this in our 
first episode of places during the pandemic that grew substantially, right? So Salt Lake City, um, suburbs outside of Austin, Texas, but they, all those cities had general plans or master plans that might not have included a population growth increase of 10% year over year for a year. And so now they might be updating their general plan and say, okay, now our population is projected to grow maybe 10% greater than we had anticipated. How are we going to accommodate for all of this growth? And then that's why those regional plans come into effect because the city itself is planning for their general plan. And then you have, so let's take New Jersey, for example. The city of Newark is planning for their regional plan, their general plan. Irvington is planning for theirs. East Orange is planning for theirs. Jersey City is doing their own plan. But people live in all of those different places. And so the regional plan has Jersey City and Newark as the central city. And then all those different towns, Montclair, East Orange, West Orange, as the other places where population will also go to. And so the region really absorbs the population, not just that central city. Yeah, so when you did look at um, uh, LA um, in their in their case study, what it, and then some of the initial research that we did, um, what were some of the things that you that you learned? So I think the best way to talk about the case study is think about it in kind of three pieces following the same piece we talked about in the beginning. What are the kind of the requirements, what's in the plan, and then where do they kind of stand now? And so in California, there is a California government code, which has some sections in it that require each municipality to create a general plan. In California, the plan has to have 11 sections, similar to the ones Nemo talked about, but I found that some of them were interesting in California. So land use, that's a given. Mobility, transportation, that's a given. Housing, that's a given. Infrastructure is a given. But in California, they have these requirements around noise and um, conservation and open space. And those were interesting to me because I never really seen those in other states' general plans. For those elements, I wonder if they're usually combined into an environment category but I do like I think it is it shows more intention for someone reading it to have them broken up um because environment is like what is that like (laughs) there's an environment of everything like there's an environment in your homes there's an environment in where you work um so I like it seems like they've got I don't know when they implemented these specific 11 um categories but it seems like there was an intention to really break down what specific aspects of their environment they were talking about which is nice Yeah, it is nice because when you think environment, the easy thing could just be to talk about, for example, air quality and and never address noise, never address public space because it's inconvenient for you. The data points are hard to find, whatever it may be. So by specifying that you have to talk about noise, you have to talk about air quality, you have to talk about conservation, it forces each town to really think about how they're doing each of those things and not just to pick and choose which elements of environment, for example, they want to have. The interesting pieces around 
the formation in California is there's all these different entities that have to review and comment on the plan. And so you're expecting that, okay, the governor's office reviews the plan and maybe the state's department of community and housing development. But in California, you also have to submit it to the department of forestry. They have a department of water quality. They have an air quality board that all the plans have to be submitted to. And when you think about it, that makes sense because my town's LA's plans for development will impact water quality. LA's plans for development will impact air quality. And so all those governing bodies, the different boards should in some way have a, a say and say, okay, well, you're planning to increase housing density in this particular area, but this is where the state has plans to conserve water resources. And so this doesn't align with our overall goals. Another interesting element, and I think we had our episode on elderly populations, but children are often very much left out of the planning process. And in California, the planning board has to, or the planning staff has to coordinate with the school district in their planning process and make sure that the schools are aligned with the development goals that the city is planning for, whether they need to plan for new schools, if we're going to be planning for an additional 20% in our population. I thought that was just very insightful. And it, I know for sure this is not the original iteration of this law. When the law came out probably in the 30s, the school board was not part of that process. And so I'm sure this is a more recent update to the legislation, but it's a, a favorable one nonetheless. Yeah, especially if schools take up so much community space and um, real estate in a town. And just because the lane feels different, like each school is almost like their own, they probably have like their own master plan. Um, and, you know, the growth that the city is planning in terms of population, um, that will impact that school's enrollment projections and their plans too. So definitely makes a lot of sense that they're included in my experience of seeing master plan updates, I haven't seen that traditionally, that involvement in the forefront um, with schools. And so to talk about the engagement piece of the, the planning process, another entity that, particularly for people who live on the East Coast, might not be as familiar with um, this level of government, but Native American tribes function as sovereign go sovereign governments in the United States. Like they are, I'm not going to say at par with the United States government, but they function as a separate governing entity. And so when the city of LA is engaging with a tribe that may have a location adjacent to or within the city of LA, it's different than talking to a community group or having a conversation with a business owner because technically this Native American tribe is a sovereign government in itself. They govern, they have their own transportation facilities, their own schools, their own everything as if they were their own state, for example, that just happens to be also located in or adjacent to the city of LA. And so the legislative body that 
forces municipalities to create the general plan requires them to coordinate their planning process with this government that's adjacent to them and say, you guys have to consult with each other and make sure that your plans are cohesive and they're working towards the same thing. And I thought that was very, um, because I come from the East Coast, I don't, I'm not very familiar with organizing or, or the different governments interacting with tribal nations, but it's a very, very important piece of our legislation. I, I was familiar, I'm not as familiar with the governing, governing processes, but I know that just, you know, driving through or, you know, the, being familiar with how the boundaries are very flexible um, with where those reservations begin and end. Um, but the planning in the areas in King County that I was more familiar with um, didn't have as many of those uh, reservations. Um, but I do think it's like, even as we talk about the history, we were mentioning the history of towns and cities when it's written in the master plan. If done right, I do feel like that is an opportunity for acknowledgement because a lot of the land in which these cities occupy are not, um, are not, uh, they were, it was taken, it was taken from um, a lot of indigenous groups. Um, and so it would be nice to see if like throughout, like maybe that's a future requirement that needs to be on a federal level, acknowledgement of the previous land, previous harm that's been done um, on this land that now, you know, people are wanting to develop and um, profit off of years later. So what did you see with LA's community engagement um, for their general plan? And like around what time was that, that was happening? I know we talked a lot about 2040 and a lot of uh, towns were doing updates in 2020. And I know the census was even going on at that time. I'm just curious what community engagement for master plans looked like then. So the legislation for the city, for, for California, for their cities, doesn't actually require a full update of the general plan. It only requires that municipalities send annual progress reports to the California Department of Housing and Community Development, just saying what progress they're making towards the goals that they established in that general plan. The only plan that's required to be updated is the housing element. So that one of those 11 pieces is housing. That 11th piece housing is required to be updated every eight years. And so in 2021, the city of LA started putting together their 2021 through 2029 housing element update. And so that's what we're going to focus on as kind of like the case study here. And so Oh, I'm sorry. They started updating it in October 2020, which is crazy because of the pandemic. So most of their engagement was virtual, but they did host some in-person sessions as it was kind of towards the end of the 2020 version of the pandemic, whatever you want to take that. So they did three in-person workshops in LA. And so they did some in the Valley, which covers Sherman Oaks in Northridge. And people who don't know, the Valley is part of the city of LA. It is not its own separate city. Then they did South LA, which you can think of as Ladera, Baldwin Hills, South Central, View Park, Crenshaw, and then another one in Central LA. Think of Mid City, Downtown, Boyle Heights, and um, Los Feliz. And so over 150 people attended those three sessions. 
and they had the sessions in both English and Spanish. They then hosted five virtual Q&A sessions in May and June of 2021. And about 300 people attended those. And then they worked with kind of key organizations across the city. So Kaiser Permanente is a very big hospital and healthcare service provider in the city. AARP, which I cannot remember what the acronym stands for, but it's the organization that works with our senior portions of the population. Enterprise Community Partners, which is a huge affordable housing developer. Eagle Rock Neighborhood Council, which is a Eagle Rock is a neighborhood and this is their council and other like-minded organizations. And so in the housing element update, which will be linked in our show notes, they have an appendix on just what they did for public engagement is where I'm pulling all this information from. And so to quickly summarize what feedback the city heard from the public during their engagement, I broke it down into about five sections, protecting renters, greater housing production, inclusive zoning, serving the most vulnerable and addressing homelessness. And so start from the bottom, addressing homelessness. If anybody's ever been to California, you know, it's tent city almost everywhere. And so the public wanted to have more wraparound services for homeless persons, more permanent and supportive housing across the city. And that relates to their kind of zoning concerns and that they didn't want to see all of the supportive housing being located in the same areas kind of concentrating poverty um, in certain neighborhoods they wanted to see it spread out serving the most vulnerable people wanted to see more protections for the lowest income households those people earning less than 30 percent ami they wanted to see housing opportunities for persons with disabilities and then i thought this was interesting the emphasis on larger families. Often we, when we plan for affordable housing, it's in an apartment complex context. And so we're thinking one, two bedrooms. Very rarely do developers want to build those three and four bedroom apartment complexes or apartment units um but those are large families are part of our population multi-generational families are part of our population and so not having housing opportunities for them poses a challenge especially in the place that's expensive and it's like there's a multi there's multi-generational families that exist there because families have been living there over time um, at a time when it was more affordable to do so probably and then as times change people's housing conditions change and, and who they're living with and people are, you know, it's, if they need to take someone in and that's their family, it's not, I don't have space, it's we gonna make space. And so the least that the town can do or plan for is acknowledging that that space is needed um, and that not everyone has the option to just buy a bigger house or move somewhere bigger to accommodate for their family, but they may need to still be on a renter basis. Um, but not necessarily like either buying a home or renting a home um, may not be as feasible as what comes with maybe being in a building or a complex. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting piece to hear from the public. Um, anything about LA as a place where there are a lot of um, ethnic populations who, as we talked about, live in those kind of multi-generational households even more. You might see that more than in a, a place that's less diverse. And then it was a consideration for zoning for inclusive communities. And so 
there was a big conversation around limited affordable housing opportunities on the west side. And so if you know LA, you can kind of understand that the south and the east, so the further you are from the ocean, the more affordable it is. So as you're on the west side, neighborhoods, mid-city, Westwood, Brentwood, the parts of LA proper, and this is always what's confusing about LA because West Hollywood is its own city. Venice is its own city. Santa Monica is its own city. But there are parts of LA that are right adjacent to those other cities. And those are kind of the West Side neighborhoods. And there they do not have a lot of regulated affordable housing or naturally occurring affordable housing. And so people from the public wanted to see more options for affordability in those areas. And so the plan hopes to increase the zoning density requirements in those parts of the city to kind of accommodate for affordable housing. Then there's just a general need for greater housing production. People wanted to see changes in zoning to have increased density and then increased density in wealthier neighborhoods with more resources. I think anybody in most cities, you can understand that the areas that tend to be the most wealthy with the largest parks and the best streetscapes are often low density. They might be single or one and two family homes. And then the areas that are neglected I'm not going to say that they are less wealthy. They're just not as resourced for various reasons. They tend to have higher density. And so feedback from the public was there should be increased density all over the city as a means to not concentrate affordability in one particular area, because especially in a place like LA, jobs are all over. And so if you're concentrating all of the affordability or the affordable housing in one particular area, but the jobs are somewhere else, you're creating a, a, a challenge and a barrier to get to work. Wow, it sounds like these residents were on it. They said, we've been thinking about this and we are ready um, and we're coming through with, with some solutions. So it's really good to hear that the feedback um, was really meaningful. Um, and I, I think some of that can be attributed to the work that they did and the outreach. Um, that happened to collect and represent that meaningful feedback. So just to kind of wrap the episode before we go into our takeaways, we designed this episode to kind of shed light on the master planning process to pair it with our community engagement episodes to hopefully incentivize our listeners to send a little alerting ear when whenever the county or your town is sending there might be posting on their website or posting in the newspaper that they're going to be updating their master plan because what feedback the city of LA got from their public is hopefully going to fuel what they see as their vision. And so if you have more comments, if you think certain things should change, I think you should be involved in that, that planning process. And then we talk through what is the master plan, who is involved in setting it up, how can you insert yourself into it, and now we're going to kind of go into what are our kind of main takeaways from this process. Nemo and I have been not working directly in the master planning process for a particular jurisdiction in a really, really long time, and so this was fun for us to go back to, but we both have some things we want to highlight in terms of 
it sounds really good, but here's how ways it could be improved. Yeah, some of my takeaways, um, revisiting, because this was like my intro into understanding how planning works in the real world, which was, which was understanding how master plans are created. And then you get in the real world. And then <laughs> I was just stop there. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you view things a little differently. You maybe see big plans um, get talked about and then you may see a lack of implementation. Um, and, uh, um, you know, it, it, in one way, it makes you want to fight harder to have those plans be, have, you know, hold those plans to be accountable. Um, on the other hand, it makes you question a lot about the process. And so hopefully in this episode, we've been able to demystify the process and I think really show the importance of it um, and uh, the collective process that it takes to complete a master plan all these years later like I still think it's really fun I think as we Jazz and I were talking about like looking through master plans um it's really interesting you learn you learn something new and it is a great intro into planning if anyone is interested in planning and listening and curious about how to put on their planner hat um for free all these master plans exist everywhere um but another thing I think about is the genesis of these plans um that was something Jasmine and I were trying to figure out when the legislation was passed we were like was it the 60s or the 70s only to find out it was the 1920s and uh, that was a hundred years ago um and I think the intentions around master planning are and because it was written into law are is still um very fixated on growth and economic development um, and I think I would like to see a more human-centered approach in developing master plans moving forward. Um, and I think each city may do a piece of that differently, but if they're not required to, then we may not see it on a widespread level. Um, and I would love to see an accountability piece too, um, because I think the intention in the 1920s was like, we'll just do it. Um, but there's not really a, a loop back process um, to show if how effective they are because we keep doing this thing every 20 years for 100 years um but we're i don't know how we're measuring um the effectiveness i think um, um jasmine you mentioned for la's housing update they have to you know mark how well or you know they have to mark how much they've achieved but is there any penalty if they don't achieve their goals um and uh, if there's not, then how would that, you know, how would the town be motivated to then move forward with their goals? Um, but yeah, so I have, those are some of, those are some of my thoughts. What are you, what are some of your takeaways? I think the elephant in the room, right, is that really, right, so if you think about your city, they don't own all of the land in their jurisdiction. You own land, your grandfather owned land, Walmart owns land. Um, and so the way that they control what is built and what looks, what things look like when they're built is really through their zoning and their, their neighborhood plans. But changing a zoning is not a very easy thing to do, right? It's, a, it's something that people have to agree on and it's a process to do so. And so 
and you don't see it happen very often, but the plans are always very lofty. No one writes in their plan, we don't want poor people in our neighborhood and we don't want homeless people to have plates, have permanent shelter. No one, and, and we want to have poor air quality. Nobody writes that in their master plan, but yet that's what we see in cities and there's the annual reporting and all those things. And so I'm always wondering what's the, like, how are we actually implementing this? If zoning doesn't change this often and no one is saying that they want to have all these terrible things happening in their community, but everybody's having these things happening. What are we need to adjust the levers that we can pull to really implement what we see in our vision and what we see um, actually playing out, what we see being implemented. And I think, going to a transportation element, which is where I spend a lot of my time in my career, there's these um, capital improvement plans, CIP plans, that really enable transit and transportation authorities, whether that's your transit provider, Metro, or your Department of Transportation to really shape. They have a lot of leverage to say, because if you think about it, those are all capital expenditures and they can, they own the land that the transit facility or the road is going to go through. And so they can very quickly make changes. If the plan says, we want to have bike lanes connecting Northeast to Southeast, the capital improvement plan that comes out every five years can make sure that a bike lane is paid for. Different than if you're saying, we want to have higher density housing on the West side. Okay. How are you going to do it? You don't own the land. You have to change your zoning to make sure that the next development that comes in instead of building a single family house, does a four family house. Um, but that process could take forever for that owner to sell another owner to buy. And then there's all these things in zoning where if you're not demolishing the full property, you don't actually have to abide by the new zoning because you're grandfathered into the own zoning. And now here we are 20 years later with the same single family house. And it's just, I don't know, I get going back to what happens in the planning process or just what's implemented on the ground is always something that's really tricky for me to think through conceptually. Yeah, I think basically what we're saying is this episode, we're going to have a part two where we dive more into zoning. I even feel like zoning could be two episodes, really talk about the process. And then the next episode is really diving into some of the, um, some of the issues and challenges like Jasmine mentioned. Um, but thank you all for joining us for episode three, three by three. <laughs> um, we drop episodes every other Tuesday um, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the number four degrees pod. Peace out, y'all.